Welcome to More Devotedly, a podcast for people who see the arts as a force for positive, progressive change. I'm Douglas Dietrich. We look at climate change from another angle in this third episode of Volume 2, this time at the ocean and people who live their lives close to it. We've been working together these last few episodes, you, the guests, and I, towards developing an intimate, personal language that will help us address this global crisis to learn to talk about our own emotional reality when it comes to climate change and how artists are participating in that process. It's not something that we'll ever finish, certainly not just in a few conversations, but I hope that some of you have made some progress. I have, and I feel more empowered than I used to feel about this issue, thanks to Stephanie McCullough, E.M. Lewis, and my next guest, Craig Santos Perez. Craig Santos Perez is an indigenous Chamorro from the Pacific island of Guam. He is a poet, scholar, educator, and political activist, often focusing on environmental issues from a Pacific islander perspective. He now lives on the island of Oahu, where he teaches literature at the University of Hawaii, Manoa. As I started this podcast, I began by interviewing personal friends, artists whose work I felt fit the mission of the show and who I knew would do me the favor of helping me through the beginning stages of a new project. However, Craig and I didn't know each other before this interview, and in fact, we still haven't met in person. I interviewed him over the phone with a recording engineer capturing his end of the conversation in Hawaii. As I broaden the number of artists who appear on this show, Part of that work has been to expand my reach geographically and to interview artists that I didn't know personally. There are artists all over the world taking a stand on issues, and I'm looking forward to introducing you to more of them. I became aware of Craig's work through the Artists and Climate Change blog, which I highly recommend. Find a link for it on the episode page at moredevotedly.com. On the post about Craig, written by Susan Hoffman Fishman, I saw a film featuring Craig's poetry that was produced by filmmaker Justin Ah Chong. Be sure to head to moredevotedly.com to see the whole thing, but let me share some of the audio with you now. Praise song for Oceania. Praise your capacity for birth, your fluid currents and trenchant darkness. Praise your contracting waves and dilating horizons. Praise our briny beginning, the source of every breath. <sighs> Praise your capacity for renewal, your rise into clouds and descent into rain. Praise your underground aquifers, rivers and lakes, glaciers and watersheds. Praise your capacity to endure the violence of those who claim dominion over you who map you empty ocean to pillage, who divide you into latitudes and longitudes, who scar your middle passages. Praise your... This poem provides such an eloquent example of how artists can mix the personal and the political. Climate change and all the related issues that affect the ocean are complicated, even though the carbon dioxide and methane emissions that cause the warming are understood Curbing those emissions in a just and responsible way won't be simple or easy. And as we struggle, we all have jobs and families and all kinds of other things to worry about. We all want to rise to meet this issue, 
yet we are all distracted by the things human beings are always distracted by. And here in the United States, our political system fails over and over again to address this problem and so many others. We need a solution to fix a broken world, and all we have to do it is a broken system. Yes, we're a mess, but the mess is all we have. I love how Craig has brought so much dignity to both the ocean and to the person who looks out on it. It asks the reader to consider the ocean in a different way with every stanza, shifting the perspective from the historical to the political to the anthropological to the personal as he floats from one idea to the next. It respects the bottomlessness of the ocean itself, the complexity of the issues that face it, and the layered lives of the people who address them. We talked about that poem and about Craig's own experiences waking up to climate change while living on Hawaii, how his indigenous heritage informs his work, and how those of us who don't live on an island in the Pacific Ocean can learn to understand the ocean more like he does. Here's the episode. Talk about how you got to be where you are, teaching, writing, and activism in terms of climate change. Sure. Well, I was born on the Western Pacific island of Guam and raised there until I was 15 years old. And then my family decided to migrate to California, which is where I finished high school, completed college, and did graduate degrees in creative writing and ethnic studies. And during my time as a graduate student is when I really became involved in activism related to Pacific Islanders and the environment. And so from that time, I started writing poetry about themes of environmental justice and climate change. And so that was kind of where it began, and I I kind of experienced the power of poetry and literature to help raise awareness about environmental issues in the Pacific and the importance of them bringing that message to Pacific Islander communities, as well as the larger environmental movement in the U.S. And then now you teach at the University of Hawaii, is that correct? Yes. So for the past nine years, I've been a professor at the University of Hawaii. Uh, I teach in the English department, specializing in Pacific Islander literature, creative writing, and environmental poetry. You've talked quite a bit about how your indigenous identity has been important to you, you know, in all these roles that you're playing in teaching, in activism, and in writing. And I'm curious what you can share about that perspective and what do you think that that brings to your work, you know, perhaps that you wouldn't have otherwise? Well, in my culture, uh, we're taught that the lands and the waters are the source of all life and that we have an ancestral and genealogical connection to place. And so you know, when we think about our relationship to place, it's more our relationship to family or to our elders. And so we're taught from a young age to treat the environment with respect and care and reverence. And, you know, when we do take from the environment, like food or wood to build canoes or houses and so on, you know, we, we only take what we need. We're taught kind of from an early age to, to live as sustainably as possible. And of course, growing up on a small island, we're we're very connected 
uh, to the land and the ocean and, and dependent on, you know, the natural environment. And so that indigenous belief, which is common in many cultures, you know, has really informed my writing and my activism to try to embody those uh, values of sustainability in my work and, and in my teaching. One of your pieces that we talked about was a praise song for Oceania. So how do you relate to the ocean, you know, from this perspective? And how do you feel that it has informed the poetry? Well, the ocean has always been, in my culture, considered the source of all life. And it is where, you know, my ancestors navigated across. So it's also a space of movement, a space of sustenance, you know, where we harvest fish from. You know, of course, also a place of recreation where, where we swim and dive. You know, so the ocean, you know, has always been an everyday part of, of my life growing up in Guam, but also a deep source of mythology. And so when I write about the ocean, I try to capture all its complexities as home, but also as horizon. And so in the poem you mentioned, Praise Song for Oceania, I try to sing the praises of all the things that the ocean has provided, not only my own people, but, you know, peoples around the world. And then to also think about the threats and harms that that humans have caused to the ocean. And so try to bring all that together in terms of thinking about the ocean as a space of both trauma, but also hope and healing. Yeah, it's certainly like trauma from the loss that's already happening and even more loss in the future. Yeah, so I write about things like, you know, like military testing in the oceans, deep sea mining, ocean acidification, coral bleaching, you know, the collapsing of fish populations. So there are so many threats to the ocean and humans around the world rely on the ocean for food and for their economies. And so I think it's an important issue that you know, everyone needs to be aware of because even if you lived, you know, in a landlocked continent, you'll still be impacted by changes in the faraway ocean. I went to the beach a lot as a kid and it was always a really important place for me. I, I loved to go into the ocean and, and to see the ocean and all that, though my perspective is not the same. I, I was curious if there's one thing you could think about in terms of how you relate to the ocean as a person who lives in Hawaii, somebody who was born on Guam, to share that experience with people that don't have it personally? Definitely. I think many people who don't have a lot of interactions with the ocean conceptualize the ocean as a vast, empty space or a blue expanse. So I would share with those people that, you know, instead we should think about the ocean as a place that is rich with history, that is tied to national economies, that is a place that is militarized, that is also a cultural space as well. And, you know, it is a space of, of everyday interactions, you know, it's a mythological space. And, you know, just to kind of see beyond the idea of the ocean as just a horizon, but instead to see the ocean in, in all its complexity as being a living, breathing entity that is connected to all of us. And, you know, that even will affect weather patterns far away. So, you know, with, with my poems, 
uh, you know, I try to kind of highlight, you know, the kind of living, breathing ocean and all its history and culture and, and politics as well. Kind of going in the opposite direction in making the ocean a little bit more personal and making it not as like an abstract economic concept or a political concept. I want to kind of go back to the praise song for Oceania and talk about how are you able to make connections between your family, your heritage, your day-to-day -day reality? How did that approach to writing about the ocean come about for you? Well, for me, what I love about poetry and literature is that it gives us an opportunity to humanize abstract ideas. And so, you know, when I started writing that poem, you know, I thought about taking my daughter to the ocean for the first time or taking her to the beach so she can swim. And that was a really important and profound cultural moment to kind of introduce her to Mother Ocean. And so thinking about that very personal family and cultural moment then made me think about the larger political and historical and economic dimensions of the ocean. So I wanted to tie together, you know, the personal and political, to weave together the local and the global, and to think about, um, you know, how I can imagine the ocean in a more expansive and complex way that uh, brings together all these interconnections. The power of poetry and literature is to cultivate this kind of ecological imagination or consciousness where we can see all these interconnections and think about, you know, how the ocean connects to our everyday lives and to how we as human beings connect then to the natural world. Do you get a sense of how your children conceptualize the ocean? And do you feel that it's different perhaps to the way you did when you were a child? I'm not sure. They're still very young. They're only five and two years old. And so when we go to the beach and they swim. I think the ocean right now is just a space of play for them, a space of recreation. And, you know, thankfully, both my daughters love the water. They love splashing around swimming. I think they like the sensation that it gives them. And so being with them, you know, in the water as an adult, of course, I'm also thinking about all the things I just mentioned, you know, especially here in Hawaii, where the ocean is a very militarized and touristized place. And so I'm thinking about those political dimensions of the experience. There are a lot of coral bleaching events happening in the past few years here in Hawaii as well. So, you know, I try not to think about all those things and just to have fun with my daughters, but it does creep into the back of my mind because I am aware of these right. issues. Do you feel that you see the ocean and relate to it in a different way than perhaps your parents or maybe your grandparents? I think so. I think with my grandparents' generation, you know, I think they spend a lot of time in the water, but mainly to fish. And so I think, you know, they saw the ocean as, you know, a source of sustenance and food. Um, my parents' generations, you know, it's a little bit different because they both traveled more and migrated, you know, across the ocean. So I think maybe perhaps they saw the ocean more as a you know, a, a space of crossing and migration and, and journey. 
you know, now for me being, you know, both a, a academic, a scholar and a poet, I kind of see the different layers of the ocean, you know, both through their eyes, but also through more kind of political, historical lens. Right. But then, you know, I think that that difference between our generation and our parents' generation is a really interesting one because, I, you know, it feels like there's a much bigger difference between perhaps our generation and the coming generations and even looking back just one generation to our parents. We were just watching a nature documentary with our kids and one thing that we noticed is how different they are compared to the similar type of show that we watched as a kid, you know, and even like, you know, tracing that back through like just some of the earlier work that David Attenborough did, you know, where there's still that same wonder and there's that same appreciation for just the amazing things that are happening and and all this amazing stuff that we can learn about animals and, and the planet. But our relationship to it as human beings is much different and we can't really rely on it to go on as it always has these days. Yeah, I think that's true. I think the, you know, the younger generations, unfortunately, are, are going to face the, the impacts of climate change that, you know, I didn't experience as a child. And then also, it seems like they're going to be much more educated in environmental and sustainability issues, because these are being taught, you know, even in elementary school, which wasn't the case when I was younger. And so, you know, even though that may, you know, foreclose their sense of, of wonder and innocence, you know, in terms of experiencing the environment, perhaps on the positive side, it will kind of transform them into environmentalists and climate change activists at a much younger age. Perhaps they'll be able to imagine uh, more sustainable worlds that previous generations were not able to do. I certainly hope that that will be true. How did you feel when you first became aware of how serious an issue climate change was going to be in your lifetime? I became aware of it, of the seriousness when I moved to Hawaii, maybe about eight years ago, when there were, you know, so many storms and so many hurricanes. And, you know, growing up in the Pacific, we're kind of used to storms, but they became much more intense and much more frequent. And I remember teaching uh, environmental poetry class, and we're in the classroom, and, you know, it's crazy wind surrounding us. It's pouring down rain. We're getting flood alerts on our cell phones because the campus is within a valley. And, you know, there's thunder and lightning. It was a nighttime class, too, so we're, we're seeing, you know, the lightning crash around us. I just could see the fear and anxiety in my students' faces, you know, as we're reading poetry about the environment and thinking about, you know, the future that they're going to inherit, but also, of course, being, you know, a new parent at the time, you know, thinking about the future that my children were going to inherit. And so that kind of moment of awakening for me happened in the classroom during a storm here in Hawaii. How did that affect you 
emotionally when you're seeing that register on the students' faces in real time? It made me very depressed, uh, very worried. You know, I too felt a lot of anxiety. I felt anger as well and felt very fearful for them and, and for all of us. And I felt very vulnerable too because, you know, these storms and, and, you know, rising sea levels and, you know, everything else that was happening around the world, you know, felt so beyond our control. And so those were my immediate feelings, you know, but then, you know, as I started, you know, talking more with the students and seeing them write their poems, I felt like the writing and the poetry started to help us feel more empowered and it gave us a voice to you know express and cope with our emotions and you know then I started to feel moments of hope as well I feel like you know literature not only as I mentioned has the power to humanize experience but it also has a power to dignify and inspire us to act and to still have hope for the future and to imagine new futures. You mentioned that some of your students had read their work at a climate activism conference. Tell me about that experience. Well, I feel very lucky that the environmental justice and climate justice movements are very creative movements. And they value the arts, music, and the humanities because it does humanize, as I said, but it also inspires and empowers. And so... You know, over the years, my students have participated in many different environmental events here in Hawaii, and it's been very inspiring for me to see them up on stage, sharing their work with an audience, sharing their own emotions and experiences, cultural backgrounds and connections to the environment. And when I look into the audience, I could see that they also feel inspired, sometimes you know, audience members will cry because they're so touched uh, by the poetry. Sometimes the poetry will be a rallying cry to help give the movement strength and momentum because being an activist is very difficult work. And so I think we as artists need to do whatever we can to help, you know, continue to inspire the movement and contribute what we can creatively. And then, of course, I see my students, you know, become more confident and empowered and interested because I think once they learn about and write about an issue, they can't help but then become involved in the issue as well. So I think poetry and the arts can be a pathway into environmental activism as well. I'm curious, what's next for you and perhaps what's next for your students? Is there anything kind of coming up that is inspiring some new work or, you know, some plans that you're making? Yes, two things. My next book of of poetry is actually coming out uh, in March of this year. And the book is titled Habitat Threshold. And it's it's basically a collection of of eco-poetry about, you know, environmental justice and climate change. And then also Praise Song for Oceania is in that book as well. Where will people be able to find your book? Either directly from my publisher, Omnidon Publishing, or you can purchase it on Amazon.com. We'll put links up on the website for that. Awesome. Thank you. The second thing I'm excited about is, you know, my spring semester here at the university is about to start. And I'm teaching two classes on food writing. And, you know, food is, is a very important part of 
of human experiences and of course of the environment and you know it's also being impacted by by climate change and so i'm excited to work with my students you know learning about food issues here in the pacific and then uh, seeing what kind of writing they produce thinking about their own relationship to to food and animals and ecosystems you know i think one of the ways that we're going to see our world changing more and more is through our food. What are your ways of introducing them to those broader issues that have to do with food? Well, to begin the class, uh, we kind of start internally. So they do a lot of writing about their own food memories and their own food cultures. And so, you know, they'll write some nonfiction and poetry about their first memories of food, maybe their favorite foods growing up. And then, you know, of course, the, the cultural foods that, that they were introduced to uh, as, as children. Uh, beyond that, we'll, we'll then talk about uh, kind of local foods here in Hawaii, thinking about, you know, what foods were grown here traditionally. And then we'll talk about food colonialism. So what kind of introduced or settler foods came with colonial American culture here in Hawaii. Then we'll also talk about Restaurant food, so they'll also write like restaurant reviews and they'll think about the politics and economies of restaurants and those experiences. Then when we get beyond that, we'll also talk about food agriculture, uh, slaughterhouses, kind of the treatment of animals in, in concentrated animal feeding operations. And then, of course, we'll, we'll talk about climate change, as you mentioned, so how it's going to impact certain foods like coffee or chocolate and uh, you know, then we'll, we kind of end with thinking about kind of the future of food, you know, whether that might be like lab-grown meats, impossible burgers, or, you know, kind of sustainable and, and organic foods. I think we lead by example in the arts. We show how a human being can think more deeply about their food, about where it comes from and who makes it and, and all these things. The same can be true with climate change. And, you know, that's a way that artists can participate in that movement is by, you know, helping people to build their own kind of emotional language around this topic and then looking for ways to kind of extend that out into the world. The way you've kind of thought about designing that course, is it by design in that way, beginning with the personal and then moving out from that as a starting point? Yes, those are great points. You know, as you mentioned, I feel like the power of art and literature is to, you know, try to describe the deeper meanings of life and, you know, to try to capture those profound emotions that, that we feel as, as human beings and, and what it means to be alive in our historical moment. And so, you know, in terms of teaching, you know, I do think it's important for students to to start with the personal so that they feel that kind of investment in the topic. And then from that grounding in, in their memories and their cultures and, and where they are today, then we could look globally at larger issues and see how it connects to, to us here. And I feel like that will help cultivate that ecological consciousness where they can see how everything is interconnected you know, from the personal to the political, whether that's food or the ocean or the environment, like we're all connected together in this one really complex, profound ecosystem. Going back to when you were talking about some of your students sharing poetry with audiences, and you talked a bit about some 
hopeful moments and some positivity. The reason that I want to come back to this before we kind of wrap up this conversation, you know, I just wanted to talk a bit about where you find some optimism, especially as we talk about climate change. One thing I really want to avoid is sugarcoating. I don't think it does anyone a favor to pretend the issue is less serious than it is and or less complicated. But at the same time, you know, we're human beings and we're not machines. We can't just set ourselves to, you know, work on some issue permanently without getting tired, without getting burnt out, without getting discouraged. So finding some optimism kind of amid the difficulty and the struggle is critical in my experience. And I'm wondering, what are some of the hopeful experiences you've had? What are some of the emotions that kind of lead you in a more hopeful direction? Or perhaps maybe hopeful isn't the only word, maybe determined. What are some of those types of feelings that you have seen or experienced, either yourself or with your family or with your students? Yes, well, I think for me, uh, hope and optimism are things that we, we need to cultivate. And so... I've been lucky to be here in Hawaii where there are many environmental groups and there are many people who are committed to, you know, both environmental justice, but also to climate justice. And so I feel hope, you know, grow inside me whenever I attend, you know, a climate march, for example, or a beach cleanup or some other kind of environmental event. And You know, and then, of course, kind of to witness the climate movement globally through media and social media, I feel hope when I see, you know, millions of people marching around the world for climate justice. Like that helps kind of grow hope a little bit more inside me. I also feel hope when, you know, I'm working with my students and I'm seeing them write their very inspiring poems and seeing them get involved in in the climate or environmental justice movements. You know, I also cultivate hope when I'm with my daughters and and we are at the beach or going for a walk at the park. I see their expressions of innocence and, and wonder and joy of being in nature and experiencing these new sensations. You know, so that also gives me hope. Being a poet, you know, writing poetry myself and, and sharing my own poetry and publishing it, you know, that helps also kind of to, to grow hope. And then, you know, having this conversation with you you know, seeing the work you're doing and other artists and musicians and writers, you know, seeing how the whole community is coming together to address these issues, I think gives me hope as well. Um, and I feel like, you know, hope and optimism and, and joy and love and solidarity and community, all these positive emotions that are so important for us to to cultivate because we do live in, in very dark and scary and anxious times. And, you know, I think we need to find those kinds of communities and moments and people in our lives where we can, you know, still feel that kind of hope amidst, you know, everything else that is is bearing down upon us.
one last question. I was curious if you could share a moment from your childhood that has been important to you in the work that you're doing now. Well, the first memory that that comes to mind is is being at my my grandma's house, and she grew a lot of fruit trees. So she had a little tropical orchard with bananas and and mangoes, coconut trees, papaya trees. And I always loved going to her house after school and, you know, just playing in her her orchard and climbing the trees. And it was especially moving when the fruit would start to grow and ripen. Specifically thinking about the mango tree, which there was have like seemingly thousands of these beautiful mangoes which were all red and yellow and orange kind of the color of of a sunset and you know there were so many and we were so excited when they would be ripened and we can pick them and then I also remember there were just so many mangoes that we could not eat them all so we always shared them with our relatives and our neighbors even though I wasn't conscious of it then just thinking about the abundance of nature and you know, how it does feed us and nurture us and give us life. But then we also, as people, you know, thinking about instead of hoarding or being greedy and keeping all the fruit for ourselves, like there was so much that we can share with our neighbors and relatives and that helped build community and connection and family. I would love for for the abundance of nature and its biodiversity to continue so that my children could also have those experiences of, of being fed and nurtured by nature, but then also sharing the abundance of nature with others so that um, we can continue to build kinship among all of humanity. That's something that comes to mind for me hearing that story is that my aunt and uncle have, they live in the country outside of Eugene, Oregon, and have a, you know, kind of a small apple orchard. Every fall, they would get so many apples that, you know, there's no way they could use them all. And so we would, they would give us a few boxes of apples. And, uh, and so, you know, it's kind of become a tradition with my children. We take those apples and make applesauce. Then later when we went to visit my aunt and uncle, it was like, hey guys, these are the trees where those apples come from that we make this applesauce. So that kind of experience where they're kind of seeing those connections in a personal way, I think are so important it's interesting how the overlap between climate change and food is just one of many ways that we can put a lens around that issue and kind of just look at a smaller part of it that makes it a little bit more personal, a little bit more real, you know? That's one of those ways that we can think about these larger issues and bring a little bit more of a concrete reality to it that they can relate to a little bit more easily mentally and and emotionally and conceptually. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I love that story and... You know, I definitely agree with with what you said about the power of art to, to make those connections and to to educate and inspire us as well. Thank you so much for doing this interview and being on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to sharing it with the audience and sharing your work with the audience. So thank you so much. Well, thank you so much as well. I'm um, honored to be part of this conversation and inspired by the work that you're doing. And thanks to everyone who's listening.
Thanks so much, Craig. And thanks to Craig and Justin Achong for granting permission to use audio from this short film, Praise Song, for Oceania. Don't miss seeing the whole film embedded on our website. Craig's next book, Habitat Threshold, is coming out March 19th, 2020. We've got links to buy the book and much, much more at moredevotedly.com. This episode was produced by me, Douglas Dietrich, right here in Portland, Oregon. Itsy bitsy spider. I composed and performed the music along with some ace violin playing by Joe Kai and some spot on singing by my daughter. The show logo was created by Lindsay Jordan Cretchen. And big thanks to Jenny for her support of my crazy ideas and to Kim Gumble for helping it all make sense. What you're doing is beautiful. Can you do it more devotedly? <laughs> <laughs>